If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast. I'm here with Gregory Baus, who is a host of the Reformed Libertarian Podcast, part of the Christians for Liberty Network here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. Greg, you've been on the show before, and you're part of the same network that I'm on. So I hope people have already checked out the Reformed Libertarians Podcast and are intimately familiar with you and Carrie and the great work you guys do. But you know, for those who aren't, just maybe give a little bit of a brief introduction for yourself before we dive into our subject matter today. So I am originally from Baltimore. I've recently moved to New Mexico, and I am a former international English teacher, but I am also a sometimes teacher and student of philosophy. So people can check out my bio elsewhere, but We'll leave it at that as an intro. Yeah, and those who have watched, well, this show and my old podcast are probably familiar with Greg. And if you're not, I'll have links to those episodes in the show notes. You can go back and watch, and Greg gives more of a bio, a more in-depth one in those, in those episodes. So Greg, you're here today because we have to touch Romans 13. And I don't know if you've ever heard that objection before. You know, someone threw it at me the other day on Twitter, and I was like, what? Romans 13, I must have never skipped. heard of it. I've never heard of it. I must have skipped over that or like had a stroke or something when I was not. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't get that, that's a joke. Yeah, Romans 13 is the boogeyman. There's a joke in libertarian circles that whenever you introduce like anarcho-capitalism to people or even just limited government, you get the idea about what about, what are we going to do about the roads? Who's going to take care about the roads? And Romans 13 is the, but what about the roads of Christian libertarianism and anarchism? Now, I've done a couple episodes on Romans 13 myself, and then also on my old podcast, the Daniel 3 podcast, I had Greg on, and we did like a really long, deep dive on Romans 13 and Reformed libertarianism, and that's going to be in the show notes, and I definitely recommend watching that. That's a really full, comprehensive breakdown of the interpretation that Greg and Carrie and myself all believe in as libertarian Christians and reformed ones at that. Although I don't think the view has to necessarily be, you don't have to be reformed to hold it, but I think reformed theology or philosophy does impact that development. But even though we've covered this before, over the years, I have encountered a lot of objections, and I've been tallying them up for a while. And if you've listened to this show, you've probably heard me hint at this for a while, that I'm going to eventually do an episode on answering objections to our interpretation of Romans 13. And so Greg and I have been working behind the scenes to kind of like split those objections into several different categories and to answer them in a, you know, hopefully a sufficient way for people who have questions on that. But to start with, just in case anyone is not familiar with our interpretation on Romans 13, and doesn't necessarily want to go back and watch those other episodes right now, we're going to start out by, I'm going to pitch to Greg, and Greg's going to give us the 
I don't know, five to 10 minute speed version of the interpretation of Romans 13 as well, what our view is, and also kind of going into how that view is not necessarily some weird, obscure reading of it that we're trying to like, you know, do eisegesis on the text and impose this new modern libertarian anarcho-capitalist political philosophy into the text, but rather that this view actually fits into historic Orthodox Christianity. So Greg, with all that preambling and prefacing out of the way, the floor is yours. Well, we'll try to break it down into two parts. I'm going to mention a little bit of history and then try to summarize the key element or elements of the view. It could be called a confessionally reformed political resistance view or the prescriptive office view. And looking at the early church, the church fathers or patristics, a number of them held this view, including Tertullian and Chrysostom. So Tertullian's dates were 155 to 220, pretty early. And he's actually, I think he's writing a letter in Scorpiaci or something like that. He's mentioning this issue of, he says, this is a quote, and we give a link to where you can read this letter. He says, the things which are Caesar's to Caesar and the things which are God's to God, but man is the property of God alone. Peter, no doubt, had likewise said that the king indeed must be honored, yet so that the king be honored only when he keeps to his own sphere. And I think maybe the that's sort of a modern translation. The Greek was something like sticks to his duties or something like that. Right. And this also ties into sphere sovereignty, which is another subject that you and I have talked about in the past, which is a neo-Calvinist reformed idea on society and how God has ordered it. Not unimportant and unrelated, but we won't get into that much in this episode, but we'll right. have links for that in the show notes as well. This will be probably one of the most linked and lengthy show noted episodes I've released. So <laughs> Very show notey. Yeah. So Chrysostom was around, his dates are 347 to 407. And in his homily on Romans, or homilies on Romans, but homily 23 on chapter 13, this is a quote. He says, what say you? It may be said, is every ruler then elected by God? This I do not say, he answers, referring to Paul as in he. Nor am I now speaking about individual rulers, but about the thing, that is civil governance, in itself. And so these two quotes, in a way, summarize the position in terms of referring to an office, not to every de facto ruler, and to the fact that the imperatives to honor the king to submit and so on have to do with when he's doing the job required of him, not going beyond those bounds. So the key element in this perspective is that when Paul says in verses one and two that the higher powers to which everyone should submit and against which resistance is forbidden, when he says they are ordained of God, this is not a providential ordination. 
and providence means the way God causes history to occur. That is everything that comes to pass is God working out his providence. If it were a providential ordination, that would mean every de facto ruler, every ruler who claims or wields power is ordained of God, that to which we must submit. But that's not what it means. Rather, it's a prescriptive ordination, which means the office is a required task and the text specifies what must be done to be genuinely in or to do that task or that office. And the prescribed task is specified, described in verses three and four, namely to be a terror, not to good works, but to bad, bad works, and to be a servant for our good, using the sword to carry out justice against wrongdoers. So that's what the text specifically says, and the proper understanding of it is as a prescription. So it's saying that what we must submit to is civil justice. And that's basically a summary of the view. Yeah, and I think it's a pretty succinct summary. Certainly, we, I mean, as, as we've shown in the past, we can expound upon that for <laughs> quite longer. And again, I'll have links to my conversations with Greg, as well as his own episodes and, and work on that in the show notes. But that's a, that's a good enough starting point to kind of establish our view. You know, as you said, Romans 13 is, is not describing all, <laughs> you know, just de facto authorities that exist, but rather it's prescribing it. And we, the, the, you know, the righteous role of civil governance. And we can know that because it says that they're not a terror to those who do good, but they're a servant and that they carry out justice. So I think, I think that makes sense. And we can see that echoed in, you know, church, early church fathers. I think also just the, uh, the ways in which the apostles and early church reacted to authorities also, would lend credence to that interpretation. So the objections then, we're going to get into those now. So the first objection that we hear to this sort of interpretation, it would be many think that Romans 13 is teaching providential view of the state and that the state is a tool and really an extension of God's sovereignty. And as we see God use kingdoms, you know, in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament, to punish sin and to accomplish his plans. Therefore, you know, we should be in submission to these authorities because of God's sovereignty. And people think this, I think, you know, they're really playing on like the very beginning of Romans 13 because it's saying like, well, you know, because these authorities are established by God, therefore, we cannot resist them. So they just think it has to be talking about, it's more of a, a providential teaching of the, the state as being under God's control. Not necessarily even that the state is always good, but just that it is a means of God and that we must be in submission to it, therefore, because of that. So that's sort of a summary of the objection or different objections that are kind of in like the same category of objections. So, what what would you say to someone who has that kind of objection to to our interpretation? So we definitely agree. We do not disagree 
that God is absolutely sovereign, such that without sin or violation of his own holy character or his violation of his prescriptive moral will for humans, he has determined, all he has determined is actually what occurs according to so-called secondary or proximate causes that he determines, right? So this is God's absolute sovereignty and carrying out his providence in what actually occurs. Some of the various ways of reading Romans 13 that suppose it's referring to a de facto or a providential ordination or establishment of those who claim or exercise state power are confusing, among other things, God's general providence and or given at creation natural consequences, right? So they're, they're confusing. They're, when they're thinking about God using evil to punish sin, they're confusing that either general providence or natural consequences natural consequences with the special symbolic or typological arrangement that was temporarily in force during the now obsolete old Mosaic covenant, right? So there was a certain arrangement under the old covenant and they're just blending that in with the idea of natural consequences or God's general providence. And let me try to parse this out a little bit. Under the old covenant, God did indeed providentially use the evil perpetrated by several empires to bring his covenanted curses against the people of the Israelite theocracy, right? So for example, going into exile. Disobedience to God under the terms of that covenant resulted in God's punishment of his people as a group. The Israelite nation was pillaged and the people were exiled in captivity. At the time of the old covenant, God also brought judgments on other nations. He says in scripture, this is what he was doing, right? He makes it explicit. However, the purpose of these various judgments and executed curses was a temporary symbol of the final judgment yet to come at Christ's second return or at his return as second coming. Once the new covenant is established by Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the old covenant was made obsolete. God no longer deals with nations or groups of people or groups of people in that way. That, that was a special condition for the old covenant. And that's now ended. There's no current covenant in force by which God is bringing this or that curse or punishment for sins short of the final judgment. I know people, this might take some adjustment, right? They read the Bible, they think, oh, God is judging people. But once Christ comes, there's none of these temporary symbolic judgments. It's just final judgment. That's what's coming the final judgment that brings the ultimate eschatological curse of ever, everlasting damnation. So there are historical so-called natural consequences for certain beliefs. That, that's always been the case. Certain beliefs that result in certain actions. For example, socialism 
brings the consequence of chaos, starvation, mass murder. These are consequences that God built into creation from the beginning. That's different than some particular act of God's judgment or punishment. But it's not as though that there are bad rulers because God is punishing wicked people. Some people have said that and we have to disagree. That's a bad hermeneutic. All people are totally totally depraved and deserve God's judgment of everlasting condemnation. Some people commit, the sins that some people commit are more aggravatedly, externally heinous evil more than others. Most of them are state officials. But short of the final judgment, God is not dishing out our individual or collective just desserts. This confusion has nothing to do with what Romans 13 is addressing. That idea is reading an exclusively old covenant feature into the new covenant era. It's a bad hermeneutic, bad interpretive principle. And we say this as Calvinists who recognize sadly that such a scheme of interpretation was perpetrated by some of the reformed, including John Calvin. But the best of Calvinist reformed covenantal theology rejects this idea that God supposedly judges nations and groups or even individuals in the pattern of the old covenant during the new covenant era before the final judgment. We just don't think that's what the Bible's saying continues to happen. God judges every person who ever existed and that judgment is coming at Jesus Christ's return as the judge. And it will be the literal end of the world. And the question about what nation or groups God might be judging short of that is just a a lie and a distraction. Right. So there's a lot there. And I would, you know, I'll add to the already, you know, novel length show notes, a link to the last episode I had you on for, which I think was episode 14, does the conflict of Canaan conflict with anarchism? And we get a lot into the... Mosaic Covenant and the, the, the idea of, of this being a eschatological intrusion and the way that God is, yep. is a lot of God's commands to the Israelites and the way that he judges the Israelites, the Canaanites, and other people in this era and in this place is necessarily different than when we're at, operating under the more natural law or common grace you know, rules of play that are pre the Mosaic Covenant and that, you know, are now back in play post the end of the Mosaic Covenant, which... That's right. So I think that listening to that episode would definitely bolster that answer there. And I think the the key thing I'll pull out of that before we move on to the next objection that I think is, you know, especially important to highlight is that... There's a yes, the distinction between consequences for sin, which are obviously real and apparent. You know, sin is often its own punishment and it's destructive and, and breeds, you know, you know, evil breeds more evil and destruction breeds more destruction. And so the, these things can often, you know, appear as if they're a judgment, but that is confusing, as you said, the 
Mosaic Covenant and, and the old old covenant with what we're currently living under in this era. And also, I mean, it, it would even be it would be one thing. Maybe you could stretch it to say, well, God might use the evil of an a- evil action of a person or the evil action of a state in you know towards an individual in their life to bring about some kind of good or to you know be be part of maybe their the process by which they turn to Christ and are redeemed like that's all possible god in his sovereignty can still use evil for his purposes but that's different than saying god uses evil kingdoms to punish groups of people collectively in mass like he did in the old covenant that that's different so we can't say well america is now going through a period of decline and this is bec- and you know if we were I don't know. Invade. Maybe America's a bad example because I just don't think it's it's hard to imagine we'd be invaded. But like, okay, well, I'll compare it to a hot topic right now. Like, it would be an error to say what's happening in Gaza is God's judgment that Israel is bringing God's judgment, rightfully so, on the people of Gaza. That's collective punishment, and that's something we have to reject under this new covenant era. To use your terminology, there. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. not, that's not what ha- that kind of setup is not happening anymore. Right. What's the judgment that's coming is just going to be the final judgment. Right. That's, that's the judgment that's coming. There's no halfway judgments before that. Yep. And again, definitely recommend episode 14 for a more expounded explanation as to the, the, the differences and, and the reasons why the, the old, the, the differences between the old Mosaic covenant and that, eschatological period and now what we're going through now. So let's move on now. Well, I guess I had one, I think I kind of followed that, kind of already asked this. I had a follow-up question to that plan, which I think I already covered, which is that we, we agree God still uses evil and the actions of nations to carry out his sovereign providential decree. So I guess like another question was that, is there a conflict between God doing that and being sovereign and our resistance or at least opposition to these forces and rulers. Yeah, and it's important to understand everything that happens is God carrying out his plan, even the evil that people commit. So there there can't be a conflict with providence. Whatever happens is, is God's providence. Right. But there's also no conflict between God's prescriptive moral will, that is what God says we should do, and resisting unjust rulers and unjust laws. To resist unjust rulers, resist unjust laws is morally permissible. Right. I mean, like everything that happens, as you said, is, you know, God allows or has, you know, sovereignly or providentially decreed to happen. That doesn't mean that we confuse those, you know, if something evil happens, something bad happens, we don't confuse that with being morally good or morally normative. We don't stop opposing theft or murder or adultery. You know, we don't say, oh, well, hmm, I guess adultery is a sin, but I guess we shouldn't say anything about it because it was God's providential will that John cheated on Jill, right? Like <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't right. make sense. That's like we, we wouldn't confusion. we wouldn't yeah. make those kind of morally 
contradictory claims in other areas, I think people are tempted to do that when it comes to governance. And that has to do well with a lot of reasons, just confusion around the role of governance, indoctrination, and you know the a lot of the uh, confused ideas that come along with all that. So I think that makes that clear. All right, so closing the, the door on that objection, the second objection, and we, we did cover this a little bit in that long episode, but I wanted to cover it again and you know do a, just a second Passover of it because this is, again, I think probably, you know we could have put this at the top. It's almost the most common objection I get. So why is the word rulers used in the text if the text is about civil governance and not the state or kings or earthly kingdoms? And like the Greek word there is, and forgive my pronunciation if it's wrong, is like archontes, which is kind of like, you know, I guess, you know, we get the arc in there. And so it's just, you know, we're anarchists, right? So that means that we're against archists. We're against the idea of arcing if we're going to like, you know, look at the entomology or the you know, literal meanings of those words and where they come from. So that that appears to people right away, like they got like a gotcha. They're like, oh, you're saying Romans 13 doesn't contradict anarchy? Well, it says right there in the text about submitting to these higher powers and then defines the higher powers as archists. So you know, checkmate. <laughs> so, oh, right. Right. Yeah, an argument from etymology or something. Well, in verse three, the ruler for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Here, this is the word, archontes, or how, how it's pronounced. Uh, rulers refers to the power in that same verse and the higher power and power of verses one and two. Right. So previously it had used the term higher powers. Then it says for rulers. That's it's the same reference. And to the minister or servant or deacon of God in verse four, and the punisher or avenger, which is ekdikos, the one who carries out justice, also in verse four, the, maybe I'm mispronouncing this, latergos, something like that. In verse six, that's the public or people's servant right? So sometimes they just use the word minister or servant there as well in verse six. The, the, so the, those are different words for the same task being referred to, to someone who bears the sword that is wields legitimate, proportional, responsive coercion against aggressors, that is wrongdoers. That office includes those who adjudicate disputes concerning aggression against persons and property, this is the office of civil governance to administer civil justice that God has prescribed or ordained. So the title of ruler is perfectly appropriate. In other contexts, we speak of, that is non-civil context, we speak of rulers too. There are church rulers, that is elders. There's family rulers, parents. There's business rulers, owners, or managers. There's private club rulers, the president of your club or whatever, what have you. There's school rulers, that is principals or headmasters or whatever kind of board, something like that, et cetera, et cetera. As are being referred to in Romans 13, there are civil 
rulers in civil governance. It may, it can be legitimate private property king, quote unquote, or have whatever title you want, lord, governor, judge, magistrate, protection agency agent, (laughs) whatever. It does not reference a monopoly state or officials of a monopoly state as such because states are inherently aggressors, usurpers of legitimate God-ordained authority and office. Now, here are some biblical passages that might help shed further light on this. In Mark 10, 42, Jesus refers to those who are accounted or reputed or considered to rule or as those who rule or as rulers over the nations. So there are indeed many such seeming rulers who are not rulers ordained by God. Those who don't meet the prescription task or office God prescribes and thus are not the rulers Romans 13 refers to. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, Christians are instructed to not seek dispute resolution between themselves from such unjust judges. In 1 Corinthians 8, 5, it says there are many such so-called lords. And these so-called lords and unjust rulers are not the ones referred to in Romans 13. And we know this since what is said about them in Romans 13 makes it entirely obvious that the ones in Romans 13 are prescribed by God. They're just and genuine rulers who are not a terror to good works, only exercise proportional responsive coercion against actual aggressors. Now, it's popular among some anarchists to say anarchism is, and and you were somewhat alluding to this, rules without rulers, but that's not technically correct. There's no problem referring to those who administer the rules in any given situation as rulers, right? Romans 13 also calls them ministers. So the word administrators would fit just as well. It's the same, same thing. Right. I think the way we described this the first time we covered it in the first conversation we had a couple of years ago, it, it's basically that we have in our modern you know, verbiage, this sort of colloquial understanding of the word ruler and we're kind of adding our modern baggage to this word. And so, you know, and then reading back into what was written 2000 years ago and like Paul's using this word in the same exact way we're using it right now, but it, it it's, it's, you know, morphed, although it's not a completely different word or concept, it's, you know, different languages and different contexts and different cultures and times there's different connotations and you know cultural norms that are attached to that. A lot of people in our society don't go around describing, as you did earlier, types of authorities as rulers. They don't look at church leaders as rulers or private property owners as rulers or parents as rulers. But in a biblical sense, you know, authorities, rulers, and things like that, you know, th- these are terms that are you know, somewhat interchangeable and you have to look at the context to decide, well, what kind of ruler is being talked about? I mean, the, the base of the if word... You want, well, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if you want to get into the etymology, people might notice that the word arche 
and Archon seem to be related, and in fact, they are. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So, and, you know, the, the, the first, in the beginning, RK, NRK. RK means first. So the word Archon, ruler, comes from, it, it's basically equivalent to the English word chief. Hmm, yeah. Chief means, you know, first. Right. You it's the first, the first or the top among yeah. you or something like so that. Tri- right. So, or so, someone. So a chief is a ruler. Yeah. So that's, so that's the connection. It's just anybody who's, you know, exercising that directorial function. Right. They're, they're first. Right. It's, a, I mean, they're, they're administer, rulers, anyone who, ad, who administers rules. It, it's, it's pretty simple. And we, we just described, I mean, up there we kind of did like, we didn't use the word, but it's kind of like describing sphere sovereignty, different types of spheres with different types of, uh, you know, authorities and, and, you know, their own governances and rules and, and areas where they rule. So I think that's, that's good. So the objection that I anticipate here and that people have given is that Romans 13 describes these rulers as not bearing the sword in vain. And so that seems to mean that the passage is, is about those who use coercion or violence. So right off the bat, we would have to say Romans 13 is seemingly ruling out by this language here, church authorities or parental authorities or other examples you gave, although those are types of rulers we can, I think we can kind of make, you know, there are some who try to make the argument Romans 13 is about religious authorities. And I just don't think that holds with that line there because, you know, but we don't have to get into that necessarily. Some people read that line and they think that about like they're not wielding the sword in vain. And they think it's a strong argument for the passage being descriptive, not prescriptive like we're saying because there's only one authority that wields the sword that Paul would realistically be referring to, which is the state or kingdoms or empires. Like Paul wasn't a Rothbardian ANCAP. (laughs) So he he wasn't describing a polycentric legal order or anything. So uh, there's two follow-ups kind of in that. Do we think Paul was thinking of, you know, more about kingdoms or nation states when he wrote this and, how would you respond to those who think Paul's words here are better interpreted as being descriptive of what most people would think of when referencing a sword-wielding authority rather than prescriptive of righteous civil governance? Yeah, I think Romans 13 is definitely referring to civil authority, right? It's not referring to all kinds of authority in terms of bearing the sword. But he is also specifically referencing legit or just rulers or just authority, namely the sort of civil power that God ordains and prescribes, which he describes. It's a description of the prescription or statement of that which God prescriptively ordains. We can see how... We can see how one can describe a prescription elsewhere in the Bible when it speaks in a kind of imperative, right? So a grammatical construction as an imperative, you should do this without qualification where there really are state unstated qualifications that are understood, such as 
Hebrews 13, conveniently also chapter 13, if you look at Hebrews. In verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's referring to church leaders. And this doesn't mean every de facto church leader or someone claiming to be must be submitted to and everything, right? It means there's a prescribed ministry for the office of church elder. And in that limited jurisdiction, when they are acting according to their God-given task, church members are to submit to church leaders fulfilling their office. Romans, so Romans 13 is speaking in the same way. It speaks without qualifications about submission because what we are called to submit to is described. It's described, it's a description of a prescribed office, a task that a legit officer must fulfill to be legitimate, to be submitted to. So, Hebrews 13 is just another example of a prescription involving description of what's prescribed. Romans 13 is just like that. It describes what it is that God is ordaining and the, or, the ordaining is prescribing. Right. Like another example that comes to my head is, you know, when it's like wives submit to your husbands. Okay, I think we would all be like, yeah, if your husband is acting in the correct Christ-like role of a husband, like you wouldn't submit to your husband if he was like, if your husband came and said, I want you to go kill this person <laughs> or I go rob a bank or, you know, or I mean, those are humorous examples. Less humorous would be, you know, if if your spouse was abusing you or or something like that, like you're not called to submit to, you know, abusive spouse who is not using their role in the correct Christ-like manner. I think we, we've seen some in the church who don't understand that and use that passage to protect abuse, abusers or to uphold abusive relationships. But I think most Christians of good faith understand that's wrong. And so they're using the principle that you're describing there you know, in that interpretation, they're understanding that when we're being told to submit to something and that something is described as good, well, that means, you know, and and there's often in the follow-up verses or in the context, you know, supporting things that we can gleam that, yeah, this is describing people who are acting in this role and that the role is just and they're doing it as God has commanded them, not abusing that role or power in any way. So, yeah, actually, during the Reformation, they recognized that parallel and made the argument for the legitimacy of resistance against the state based on the idea that, you know, submitting to abuse in marriage is it wouldn't be legitimate, isn't isn't being called for. Right. They actually saw that. It's it's another good parallel. Yeah. Yep. So, in other words, to kind of summarize what you said. Romans 13 is prescriptive of the legit or righteous task of civil governance, but the structure in terms of like the the syntax or the grammatical structure of the passage 
is that Paul is describing the just civil authorities. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so, and we know that Paul is referring to the just civil or righteous civil authority and not all sword bearing authorities or claim claimants of authority. The reason we, we know that is because the description would not hold if it was the latter. And it would result in a teaching that would require us to never resist anything that God has providentially brought to pass, not just kings and rulers, which we already kind of covered in the first objection is just kind of a, you know, biblical non sequitur in terms of how we apply moral, biblical moral principles. Yeah, we'll elaborate on this, I think, a, a little bit later, but just put it out there now to believe that the passage is telling you to never resist what God has brought about in his providence, right? As some are claiming, that's just simply incoherent. You can't get moral imperative out of providence. It, right. Even if you think this is restricted to the case of civil powers, it just doesn't make sense to say this is providential, therefore, submit to it. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't follow. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, yeah, we'll, back we'll, to that point. We'll, we'll finish that off in a later objection. All right. So I think that's good. Moving on to the third objection. The passage talks about paying taxes. So how can the passage not be talking about the state? That's definitely the most common objection I hear. People go, well, you're focusing on the first half of Romans 13, but keep reading because it then says, this is why it's this is why you pay taxes, not only for sake of wrath, but conscience, and then goes on to say, you know, pay to all who is due, tribute to whom tribute, honor to whom honor, custom to whom custom, things like that. Although people then <laughs> they accuse us of stopping reading, but then they also stop reading there and don't read the next part, which which says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another, which I feel like says a lot there. But but yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm almost giving it away there, but let's, let's go ahead and how would you answer that objection to, well, the, the taxes part? What about of taxes? Right, yeah. <laughs> We've gone from what well, about, this is yeah. An, <laughs> yeah, what about roads? What about taxes? Well, this is another example of people not reading closely enough because while Romans 13 and other passages say that all should pay what they owe, that doesn't mean everyone or anyone actually owes what some group in power might claim they owe as taxes. The fact is that at the time of Paul's writing, the Roman Empire didn't even claim taxes from everyone. So it wouldn't make sense for him to say, everyone pay taxes. There was no income tax. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't even make sense. The Bible never says anywhere, simply pay taxes. It doesn't say that, let alone pay what those in power demand or that you in fact owe taxes. It never, never says any of those things. So what would be a legitimate case of actually owing a whatever the pronunciation is of the Greek word phoros or phoros yeah, or something like I feel that, bad right? If there's this like, tribute. I feel bad if there's like an actual Greek scholar 
linguistic yeah. who listens to the and just is like cringing at our clumsy attempts and to I, pronounce I assume it. modern Greek is pronounced different anyway. Well, so, yeah, that's you part know, of the problem, whatever. yeah. <laughs> so if I, or I need to roll my R or something. something anyway, yeah. phoros is, is the word tribute in the King James. Basically, so if someone's saying, okay, well, if it's not, if it's not you're obligated to pay taxes, what would be a legitimate case of you paying this thing? And I, it would be rent. Rent is a legitimate example of foros, of tribute. The same thing with the, with the other word that's translated custom, right? What, what would be a legitimate case of this? The word is telos that is used for other things as well. But in this case, it's referring to custom payments. That, you know, an equivalent legitimate case of that would be like a toll, a toll fee. So you, you decide to drive on a toll road that's, you know, there's a charge for it. You would owe it and you should pay it. So those are actual cases of, of what Paul would be talking about. Legitimate cases in which you should pay a foros or a telos, right? These are legitimate costs that you could owe. But the words are not really meant to be technical or exhaustive or comprehensive of things you could possibly owe, right? You get that sense in the passage he's listing out some things. Anything you can legitimately owe, if you owe it, then you should pay it. And when you voluntarily use or buy someone else's service or product that they offer for a cost, and this entails what we can technically call a proper title transfer contract, right? Then you are obliged to pay. This, this may happen in a customary fashion. For example, when you sit down in a restaurant and order food, right? It doesn't matter if you're exchanging with the mafia or with terrorists when you're making legit, you know, title transfer contracts exchanges then you would, if you owe them, you have to pay them. That's, that's the biblical principle. The Bible is really condemning things like socialism or the idea that you're, you're owed other people's work and stuff for free, right? It is not promoting taxation or saying that we have to submit to being robbed. We have to submit to theft. That's not what it's talking about. So the same idea is behind Jesus's famous render or give back to Caesar what is his statement. Jesus never condones Caesar's tax or taxation in general. He just says in so many words, Caesar's actual property belongs to Caesar, so give it to him, right? Jesus never says everyone owes to Caesar whatever Caesar demands or that anyone owes anything to the U.S. government or any other contemporary state today. We summarize that, the Reformed Libertarianism statement, the section on taxation, and in Principle 19, we'll put a link to that, just summarizes this principle. You've got to read carefully. People just read over this and think, oh, well, I have to pay all my taxes. Yep. But, that, but the Bible never says that, just doesn't. No, exactly. And the, uh, that's why... I- Earlier, when I was felt like I was starting to give it away with a reference to the 
yeah, the the render unto Caesar. That's I think that's the same principle of that play. It's possible Paul's even thinking of of that when he's writing that down because that is the correct view. And in the same way, I think again we we hear the word tax in our modern translated Bible written in English, and we just automatically colloquially think you know the IRS. <laughs> or property tax right. or things like that in the same right. way we had that you know confusion with the word ruler but you know there are real life and biblical examples of both of those things that don't fit into the modern you know understanding or even biblical understanding of kingship or kingdoms or or the state you know you, you gave good examples of types of foros or telos that are not you know initiations of force that you would, you know, those are legitimate things that we owe to people. You know, if we, if we use something just like a, you know, in the biblical sense, when Israel didn't have a King and they had judges, those judges were rulers. They weren't, they weren't Kings. They weren't States. So we, we have to, we, we have to do, do that, that work of divorcing these terms in terms of what we attach these modern baggages to and what their actual, original meaning in the text was at the time they were written. And that means, you know, doing sound, careful exegesis of what was written and, you know, a little bit of intellectual rigor and common sense. (laughs) That's right. Yep. So that's pretty good. I don't have any follow-ups for that one. I feel like it's self-explanatory. You guys both have links we'll put in the show notes further expound on that topic of what about taxes? So the next one, this one's a little bit complicated. So there's actually, we, we, we probably had the most, I think this one has the most follow-ups to it because it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a combination of different objections I've heard from different people. So some people have suggested that this interpretation, this prescriptive civil governance, righteous civil governance interpretation does not hold when Romans 12 and Romans 13 are exegeted line by line. They've questioned the legitimacy of this interpretation because it seems to be bringing an outside perspective on the text and not just reading the text straight through and that we're, we're jumping around and we're, we're, we're taking things out of, out of context or not, you know, not reading it in a beginning to end kind of sequence fashion so we'll get you know so as as you give your answer to that and then i'll provide some follow-ups that'll you know continue to explain this objection and 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 pick it apart yeah if the idea of line by line means trying to interpret isolated words isolated words or phrases or statements that are taken out of the context of the broader statements. I I just think that's a kind of biblicist fallacy. It fails to understand how language works in general and how the Bible uses language. So maybe we can point people to a work called Exegetical Fallacies. Might be helpful for people to look at that. It's written by D.A. Carson. Not a fan of everything he says, but this is a pretty good book from Baker Academic, Exegetical Fallacies. In any case, there's a very simple analogy here. If someone says they love pizza, 
or the song Bohemian Rhapsody or something, you don't exegete that line by line in a way that isolates its meaning from what is overall being communicated, right? So chances are they don't mean they are actually romantically in love with a food item or a musical composition as though it were a human being. And there's no outside, depending on what's, what's trying to be communicated here, someone's saying you're, you're bringing in an alien perspective. There's no outside perspective being brought into the text in this exegesis. There is proper intertextuality right, of the meaning of scripture as a whole, which is that's, that's a necessary principle for interpretation of the Bible. You know, we go on to demonstrate that our libertarian anarchist political theory is permitted by and agreeable to Romans 13 and the Bible's teaching, but our view of Romans 13 is also affirmed by those who are neither libertarian nor anarchist right? So from the early church on up through the Reformation and to today, people affirm this who don't agree with us politically. That simply shows we aren't giving some kind of novel, ideologically influenced reading. So to go straight through or line by line, that kind of approach that would read verses one and two and say, well, This is obviously talking about God's providential ordination. That's not applying reflective critical thinking to that conclusion itself even. If it was providential, then that doesn't allow for the moral imperative to submit. This is a little bit of what I was saying earlier. Since, okay, so so follow me here. If the statement was that God's ordination was providential. You couldn't, Paul couldn't go on to say, therefore, for that reason, you have to submit because not submitting would necessarily be just as providential, Hmm. right? So if the power's providential, so is resistance. That would be providential too. Right? (laughs) You can't get, moral imperatives from providence. But that's the erroneous conclusion that many people have jumped to. And that's just, it's just incoherent nonsense. So you need to, you know, speaking of interpretation, you need to be a more serious and careful interpreter of God's word on that point. Now, so here's the actual continuity of Paul's thought from chapter 12 through 13. It should be understood this way. In light of his exhortations in chapter 12 to not conform to the world, to discern and hold fast to what is good, to abhor evil, to avoid vengeance, to live at peace, and so on, Paul explains in chapter 13 that despite the evil of monopoly states such as the Roman Empire and all the empires before it, of which he's quite aware, God has established a legitimate role for civil governance, that is, for the administration of civil justice, that our submission to the sort of civil governance that God prescribes or ordains is also in accordance with his moral will 
and the believer's new life of love in Christ, right? So that's the thinking. That's to understand it in the context, reading it straight through, right. line by lines to take it. That's, that's how Romans 13 makes sense in the actual text. Right. And, and I think that that's makes, what Paul's getting at. I think that makes sense in the, the, the style in which Paul writes is often that he says something. Then the next t- thing he says is often answering the anticipated objections to the last right. thing he said. And so when you read Romans 12 and you get to the end and it says, do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not conform to the ways of this world. Do not, you know, and don't even seek vengeance. Vengeance belongs to me, says the Lord. And so it's like, you can imagine someone reading that and going, well, wait, what do I do? <laughs> well, it's like, so what does yeah. it mean to not overcome evil with evil? Am I supposed to, you know, because, you know, some people might be, okay, well, this, that, 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 the pacifist argument is, okay, well, that's, you know, do not resist evil. So we're not, we're not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. So it means just do nothing in the face of evil. Let evil run amok. There's nothing restraining evil. And Paul's like, okay, no, like he's anticipating that people are going to read yeah. the end of Romans 12 and be like raising eyebrows. And so he's then in Romans 13 saying, so yes, we, 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 sub- we need civil governance and we should be submitted to righteous civil governance. And, and that's so, right. There is still proximate justice right. for a crime against crime in for this civil, world yeah, for that, c- God yeah. is, that, that God has provided for. Right. Exactly. The objections can sometimes be because people want to take lines in isolation and like over, you know, like do this kind of weird, like, you know, word by word exegesis that takes them in goofy places, as you described. Sometimes the counter argument comes more in the form of, of, of accusing us of interpreting lines in isolation or not reading the passage straight through, but that we're jumping around. And so like we, we read is not a terror to good works and we then go back to governing authorities or higher powers in verse one and conclude it can't be the state. And people have labeled that as inverting the text and that we are reading descriptions of the governing authorities and then going back to define the subject matter rather than saying, well, what's the most likely subject matter? Like, what's the subject we need to, before we read any further, you should just know what the subject matter is and then accept Paul's descriptions of that subject matter as accurate on, on their face. And we're doing a bunch of hand-waving to, to people who, I don't, this is not going to, people only, they don't get to see my, my cool hand gestures there, hand-waving away of what Paul is just clearly saying here. So how well, would you how would you respond to that? I think if if someone's reading verses one and two apart from the subsequent verses, the providential reading is still incoherent, right? For in the way that I explained, it's just it, it's trying to squeeze a moral imperative out of providence, and that just doesn't work. But you can, I don't know, stubbornly, blindly insist on that if you want, but you're not making any sense. So, you know, let that marinate a little bit, maybe to give that some further thought. It's, I I think it's incoherent to say, don't resist the power because the power is providentially ordained by God. 
because everything is providentially ordained by God. So if someone's, someone resists a de facto power, that's, that very resistance is also providentially ordained by God. Maybe they don't understand what they're trying to argue for, but it's not an illegitimate reading back into an earlier verse when a later verse is, or later verses are direct elaborations of earlier verses, right? So you're not doing something tricky or unintended by the verses. And of course, the numbering on verses weren't there when Paul wrote it. He wasn't going like verse one and writing something. He has a, there's a flow to his argument. And if what he says later is meant to clarify what he's saying earlier, then that's what's intended. We are intended by Paul and by God, who's inspiring him to write, to understand verses one and two in direct light of the following verses that make abundantly clear and obvious that the ordination is prescriptive. That's it. So the following verses directly tell us what kind of power God authorizes or ordains, of which it is not permitted to resist. So those verses tell us it's not all the facto powers, but rather powers that fulfill the task of administration of civil justice, that is, powers that do what God is describing, and what he is describing is a prescription. Right. It prescribes, it requires the task that should be done that must be submitted to. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, I think, I think what it's like people think, and like uh, this objection actually usually comes from other reformed Christians or Calvinists, and they say what the open theists or Arminians are doing with like Romans 9 is what you're doing with Romans 13. But I was like, well, no, what, what the objections to the reformed like understanding of the what Romans 9 is talking about in terms of God's sovereignty over election and salvation, people will take, you know, passages that have nothing to do with that text and try to change the meaning of that we're staying within this text, so I think that's different. And two, we, you know, this isn't the only text where people have to do that to come up with a coherent reading. Like it would be like if you were reading Romans seven, when Paul is talking about how, you know, he says like we do the thing that we don't want to do, even though we know it's bad, and he's talking about being enslaved to sin, and you know, saying like we we can't do good. Well, if you were to stop there, in Romans seven, and just conclude all right, well, we, we, we cannot do what is good ever. We're just always enslaved to sin. It's like, well, hold on. He didn't read Romans 8 where he says, well, and, and he clarifies, well, you know, that was before Christ. That was before the new covenant. That is before you have been redeemed and be given a new heart. And now you can live by the spirit instead of by the flesh. So it's like, we always have to keep reading. Like we can't just like read something and then say, stop. Well, that's just a universal truth. And there's nothing after this that can change how we're reading this line right now. So again, I think, I've never read that book you read, but I imagine that's part, you know, that is, I think, just bad exegesis. And there are some people who I think do that. Just, like you said, it's just not, not coherent. Yeah. You, you yeah. can't, you can't, you know, you can't start out by pre-assuming. The other thing is like, it's not like Paul says at the very beginning, submit to the state, 
right? He doesn't say submit to all earthly kings at all. Like it's not like he's being that clear. He's saying submit to like the the minority interpretation. I think is higher powers, and then most people interpret it as governing authorities. But again, as we've established, governing is not one hundred percent uniquely about the civil authorities. So even right there, you'd be like, well, okay, what governing authorities? Because if you start stop at line one, you could still make an argument that it could be religious authorities or or a lot of other things. You've got to keep reading to figure out what he's talking about. I don't think that is, I don't think that's bad exegesis. I think that's just coherent exegesis. <laughs> right, that's right. It's the context. Read in context. Right. Okay, so that objection, I think we did good on. We got two more here. We'll try to do these as quickly as we can, but still thoroughly. So, objection five, is our interpretation susceptible to theonomic interpretations? If Romans 13 is prescribing righteous governance, how is the prescription to punish evil limited to civil crimes and not sin more broadly? This objection actually was given to me by a close friend of mine, Stephen Rose, who is the host of the Anarcho-Christian podcast. And so him and I have had many a argument over the correct interpretation of Romans 13. And this is basically his concern. And I've heard a couple of other people kind of make similar. Actually, I've, I've had theonomists tell me when I make that interpretation, they go, okay, cool, you're a theonomist or the Christian nationalists go, cool, we agree. You're a Christian nationalist. I'm like, no, right. hold on, oh back up. <laughs> so so how would we answer that? Why, why is the righteous civil governance limited to civil crimes and not sin more broadly? All right, I'll pretend I'm talking to Stephen here. And, you know, we agree and it's not, you know, compromising our position to agree this this far. We agree with establishmentarians and theocrats and theonomists who read Romans 13 correctly in terms of rejecting a view of God's ordination as providential or de facto in Romans 13 and to understand that the passage is prescriptive of an office, right? So to agree with them about that, we nevertheless reject their failure to properly account for the old Mosaic covenant having been made obsolete, the end of theocracy, and the resumption of the normal operation of common grace. Right. We're back. We're back so you to just the, have to distinguish. Right. We're, we're back to almost the same answer we gave back at the beginning. <laughs> it's, it's That's right. Misunderstanding of the Mosaic covenant. Yeah. So to to have other people who get that bit wrong, but get the bit about it not being providential, but being prescriptive correct, that's okay. That doesn't mean we agree with them on the things that they're wrong about. Right. (laughs) The special, temporary, and typological covenant stipulations that once required the criminalization of non-aggressive immorality in the old covenant promised land, they are now ended. Exactly. And the meaning of the lex talionis in Genesis 19, that is whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, 
sorry, not 19, Genesis 9, rather, is reaffirmed in Romans 13. The good and the bad referenced are exclusively civil. That is a matter of initiation of coercion or of aggression against another's person or property because in a non-theocratic context, that is any covenantal context outside of the old Mosaic covenant, using coercion against non-aggressive immorality violates the God-given justice principle of proportionality that is established in Genesis 9. The Lex Talionis of Genesis 9 is limiting not only the extent or degree that coercion may be used, but whether it's used at all. Outside the old covenant, of which the new covenant is, and before Moses was also, that's, that's outside the old covenant context, coercion may not be used against what is not itself coercive. So we know Romans 13, that in Romans 13, God is not authorizing coercive enforcement of all moral duties, right? He's not saying sword bearer against everything that could possibly be wrong. It's not even using coercive enforcement against all external moral duties, nor even against all external moral duties towards our neighbor. We know this because the unique arrangement of the old Mosaic covenant is over. And we know Romans 13 requires the non-aggression principle because otherwise the use of coercion violates the proportionality that God establishes for civil justice outside the old covenant context. That's pretty much it straightforward. Right, exactly. And I mean, there's, there's so much that we can point to in the Bible that bolsters, I mean, that, that makes it clear that the Mosaic covenant has ended, that the theocratic elements of God's plan have, have come to an end. I mean, this is, again, dealt with through, through all of the scriptures. We see in, it's even, it's even foretold in the Old Testament, we see in like Ezekiel 37 and Jeremiah 31 and, and Isaiah as well, the foretelling of a new covenant, meaning there has to be an end to the old covenant. This is something that, that my conversations with theonomists, they always try to make it like, no, there's just one covenant that has always existed. And I'm like, how do you not, like even the old Testament doesn't get, doesn't support that, let alone the new Testament, which then when you get to the yeah, new- Galatians 4 explicitly right. yes. contradicts idea. The one covenant, the one covenant after the fall is the covenant of grace. That's what's promised in Genesis 3. That's what's explicitly articulated with Abraham. That continues. And in in Galatians, Paul says, the old Mosaic covenant is something added. Right. It's something on top of the gospel promises for a specific purpose. So that's the old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Right. There is one, one covenant after the fall. That's the covenant of grace. And the Mosaic covenant is added. Right, exactly. And so if you're confused about that, read Galatians carefully right. and slowly. Right. I remember one of my conversations with my theonomic friends, he was like, what, what objections would you give to 
forget what exactly. They go like, what, what, what are your objections to this from scripture? I said, start with just the entire book of Galatians. And, yeah, Galatians and, then, and Hebrews. Yeah, Galatians, Hebrews. Yeah, Romans 9. Although that also speaks to the, which I've, I've done an episode of that recently. It also, I mean, it does speak to things that we care about as re- reformed Christians, but it also speaks to the the covenantal promises of Abraham and, and, of, and of Moses and all that. So that's all, it's all there. It's, it's very, okay, that, that would be like a whole other podcast episode that, could be yeah. done. And people might think we're being trite with, well, like the Bible's our objection. But, <sighs> you know, seriously, these are what it's, it's these texts that are what the argument are specifically about with theonomists who don't understand covenant theology. They really don't. Right. And so we, we you know, we'll, we, we can, we'll have further links to help theonomists think this through to understand how, how they're misunderstanding it. But, you know. Right. There, there's like so much we can say right now. Right. There's a there's a new there's a new covenant, and you know it's like there's the the point of the law was to point to our need for a savior, and now we have a savior. And although we do need civil authorities for dealing with civil crimes, non coercive immorality is now to be left for God to deal with in the final judgment, or before that, he can extend grace to those that he has chosen to be his elect. He chooses to, right. to, that he died to save and that cannot be, that he will not lose, that he will hold on to and who will persevere to, to the end. So I think that's the gospel message right there. So I think that's important. Yeah, like I said, which prophesied in, in, in Jeremiah, we, we, we see things in, in, in Luke and I mean, it's just all over. We we could read all these passages, but it might just be even more sufficient to one day in the future do a, a special episode devoted to our, our uh, theonomist friends. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yep, but yeah. And I like that, like you said, Galatians 4 says that the old covenant like Hagar is cast out. So last objection here. So we can try to squeeze this under the, uh, my hopeful 90-minute time frame. <laughs> there's a lot we tried to cover here, guys. And if you've listened the whole way through, we appreciate it. There's a lot here. I hope that it's edifying and informative. So, and I kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I just want to make it really clear at the end because this is, again, an objection that I hear a lot. Well, Paul can't have had libertarian anarchy in mind. So what is he actually talking about? Why would he be talking about it? And how could it be plausible that Paul is not specifically talking about the Roman Empire? Yeah, I think it's clear that Paul is not thinking about libertarianism. That's right. Romans 13, in our interpretation of it, is not political theory, right? That's key. The interpretation that we're discussing responding to objections about, that stands on its own apart from whatever one's political theory is. The passage refers to what legit civil authority can rightly do. Illegit claimants to civil authority might do it at times. For example, even the mafia, mafia bosses can execute murderers and they can ensure restitution to victims. Right. And no, no one's going to say a mafia boss is legitimate. The main concern of Paul 
is, as I explain in the Libertarian Christian Institute article that we're going to link to, is how in light of all Paul says in the prior chapter, chapter 12, can there ever be civil authority that is legitimate, that's a legitimate enterprise today, right? That's his main concern to answer that. Today, people take the state for granted to such an extent, I think, that the fact, the fact of what Paul says in chapter 12 should raise the question in their minds, but, but it doesn't even occur to them, right? So <laughs> the state is such a factor in their lives. It's such a given. They read chapter 12. They, they don't even think to say, well, oh my goodness, should, should there even be a state then? Like they don't even think to ask that, but that's the question they should be asking after they read chapter 12. That's the flow of Paul's thinking. So in other words, Paul's addressing the naturally arising question is civil authority as such compatible with Christianity or is sword power as such inherently evil and against God's design for human life, right? He's trying to explain that that's not the case. Paul explains that legitimate and just civil governance is God's normative design. That's what's happening in Romans 13. Paul realizes that the gospel will in the future spread throughout the whole earth to every kind of people and be in places and in times where the Roman empire doesn't exist. He's not referring to the Roman empire because he's talking about civil governance generally and just civil governance. He's talking about justice that God has ordained. And we know that the Roman empire doesn't fit the bill, right? Right. So that's what he's discussing. So that's what makes entirely plausible. So think of Paul completely aware that there are places that the Roman empire isn't. And he wants to address Christians who are going to be in those places. So he's, right. he, he's, not, he's not restricting it to the Roman empire. That has nothing to do with what he's actually getting at. He's talking about civil governance being a legit thing when it's just as God's ordination. Right. And we also believe that what Paul wrote was inspired. So there, there's, there's probably a lot of things that God is, is speaking through the text that might not, not, you know, not necessarily have, you know, even come from Paul himself, but they were given to him by, by the Holy Spirit. So that's something to keep in mind as well. When, right. Applying when in this. ways, applying yeah. in ways that Paul couldn't foresee. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. I think the, yeah, it's almost funny. Like earlier I said, this would be a question that people would have and people should even today have, like you said, they should read Romans 12 and go, well, wait, is there even a role for the state? I think Romans 13 is Paul partially answering that question, but it could also partially be answering the question of, or the con like concerns of, well, Paul knows the Roman empire is evil, oppressive, idolatrous and whatnot. And so people are like, well, you know, what do we, <laughs> what do we do about that? And Paul could be reminding people, listen, just because Rome is evil, doesn't mean that civil, that, that government, you know, lowercase g, 
and that you know go- governing is is wrong and reminding people what that proper role right. is. So there's kind of a dual purpose there, and it's not Paul giving a you know Rothbardian lecture on polycentric legal order or anarcho capitalism, but rather what we have right. you know as Christians who are libertarians and and caps at that have read what the scripture says, and we would say that if we are trying to promote in society civil authorities that are structured in a way that best comports with everything the Bible teaches about morality and authority and justice in a way that's not going to lend itself towards abuses of power or idolatry, such as what God warned the Israelites about in 1 Samuel 8 when they asked for a king. If, if we're looking for that, then we would say because of what we, we have been taught by scripture, including Romans 13, the political conclusions that line up the best with that are libertarian anarchism. That's right. Absolutely. Right. So, but even that will be imperfect. <laughs> and, and that, that, you know, it's, it's not, we're, we're, I always, libertarian anarchy doesn't mean, you know, it's, it, there's still governance in that because there will still be fallen people who do fallen things and need to be dealt with. So, well, we are about an, almost 90 minutes in, Greg. I think that went well. I think we, again, those are like six objections or, or, you know, sets of objections that people give to this interpretation of Romans 13. And I think that we, I think the answers we gave, I hope people find them sufficient if not, well, I guess people can submit more objections and maybe in a year from now, We'd we'll do- We'd love to hear them. Yeah, we'll love to hear them. We'll do a round- Send them in. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll spend the next year writing part two if that, if that happens. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think, I think that covers most of them. Greg, any final thoughts, summaries you want to give and then also plug the things you got going on in your podcast before we close out here? Well, if people haven't listened to- Reformed Libertarians podcast, you know, I'd encourage them to, of course. And I think, I think we're a good compliment to the Biblical Anarchy podcast. Let me, let me put it that way. Right. Yeah. I, I often, cause I tell people I'm Reformed and like my, my, uh, my pastor who, uh, my pastor probably feels loved. I, I feel like I've been bringing him up on every other episode of my podcast lately, which he, he listens to. <laughs> I've told him, like, listen, if you're not down with anarchy, you don't like that term, go listen to the Ro- the, the Reformer Libertarians podcast. They, I mean, now they're ANCAPs sure. too, but they don't yeah, we're use... So we're softer sounding. Yeah, but they don't, they don't, <laughs> no, they don't use the word. So if the word's the hang up, then they'll, they'll give you the ideas in the different package that are more palatable maybe. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the, the edgy version of, of all that, I guess you could say. All right, well, Greg... Pleasure of always, as always, to have you join me for a conversation and to dive into these topics more deeply. And again, yes, anyone listening to this, please check out the Reformed Libertarians podcast. Greg and Carrie do great work there. Different, you know. Again, we the, the whole Christians for Liberty Network has a slew of different people who are coming at things from different angles. And you know, especially for those of you who are Reformed. I mean, I'm reformed as well, but I try to do a decent job at representing a more mere Christianity or universal 
you know, not not strictly reformed view on this show. If you want really deep dives into the, you know, libertarianism from a strict reformed perspective, the Reformed Libertarians podcast is definitely the place to go for that. And they also do a great job in terms of expounding on libertarian philosophy and ideas as well. I guess that's it. Greg, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will talk again soon. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.